Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. I'd like to tell you about a fantastic new book that just released from Hanover Square Press called Femina, A New History of the Middle Ages Through the Women Written Out of It by Dr. Yanina Ramirez. The Middle Ages are seen as a bloodthirsty time of Vikings, saints, and kings, a patriarchal society that oppressed and excluded women. But when we dig a little deeper into the truth, we can see that the Dark Ages were anything but. Oxford and BBC historian Yanina Ramirez has uncovered countless influential women's names struck out of historical records, with the word femina annotated beside them. As gatekeepers of the past ordered books to be burned, artworks to be destroyed, and new versions of myths, legends, and historical documents to be produced, our view of history has been manipulated, and women of the Middle Ages have been almost entirely written out until now. In Femina, Dr. Ramirez invites us to see the medieval world with fresh eyes and discover why these remarkable women were removed from our collective memories. Femina by Dr. Yanina Ramirez is available now. Pick up your copy at your local bookstore. Hey everyone, it's Jordi. And sitting with us today is Kanchan. Kanchan is from New Delhi, India. And while she has worn many career hats, we are going to be talking about her first book today, which is a memoir titled Leaving, How I Set Myself Free from an Abusive Marriage. Our conversation will revolve around domestic abuse and violence and mental health. Additionally, Addictions and other mental health concerns may be discussed. Hi, Kanchan. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Jodi. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, I'm so excited to honestly just dive into everything you discussed in your book and the topics that surround all of these issues. So my first question for you is, abuse can take many forms. It can be psychological, emotional, and physical. Mm-hmm. Abuse can also be obvious or subtle. So could you explain to us what abuse looks like in relationships. Again, abuse in relationships will entail everything that you just mentioned. It could be physical. It could be emotional. It may not appear to be emotional, but then physical turns into emotional. It affects your mind. It could be financial. It could be sexual. It could be just a little pushing and pulling, but everything of that nature is an abuse. Mm Mm-hmm. So one one of the big things when it comes to abuse is the perpetrator will try to isolate the victim, whether that's through cutting them off from their families and friends, whether it's financial, and then basically just slowly taking control of their life. And sometimes it could be so slow that you don't even see it happening. Right. And that's what exactly happened with me because I thought whatever I was going through was my normal life. I did not realize that I am being victimized. I was isolated. I was numb. I was depressed. I was in his trap, totally under his control, under his power. But then I thought this is what life is. This is what a married life looks like. Till the day I realized that no, this is not a normal life for me. I am a victim. So one has to accept that part where you say that I'm a victim and then you need to visualize what freedom will look like. 
And that is where it begins your journey for freedom. So how did you finally realize that being treated this way is not normal? It's not something that should be accepted or tolerated. Jodi, that happened after so many years. I remained a victim for a long time. I had almost three children born by the time. In the first four years, I had a set of twins and a daughter. And I did not realize it till my faith in universe brought to me collaborators like angels and mentors and guides to give me the direction. And one fine day while I was standing outside in a veranda with my three children, my twins were not even two years old. I was holding them next to my chest and my daughter was entangled in my, she was in my leg just close to me. And I was standing and my ex at that time had hit me and he had ran out and he said, I'm not coming back again. And I'm wondering what is going to happen, what is life. I was really sad. My tears were flowing down. The, the evening was turning into night and I, I was so helpless at that time. And then I could feel a little shadow behind my neck. And I turned my face and there was this lady standing whom I had never seen before. And she said, oh, it seems you are Mr. Bhaskar's daughter. And I said, yes, I am. And she says, you look very sad. What happened? But before that, she introduced herself. She says, oh, I am visiting my brother. I live in UK and I'm just flying through New Delhi. And for just one night, I'm staying with my brother. And she said, so you look very sad. What happened? And I said, I was just waiting for some talk to me. As soon as she said that sentence, my tears started rolling down. And I was out with my story and saying that this is what has happened with me. I was such a happy, good, lucky girl, fun girl, educated. And then this arranged marriage has turned into a torment for me. And it's impossible for me to even live one more day of life like this. And she said, but you see to be educated, why don't you do a job? And I said, how can I do a job? Because I've got these three toddlers with me and how can I go and work? And she says, stop making excuses. That is the sentence that got embedded in me that day and throughout till this day. That she said, stop making excuses. Children, no children, do whatever you want. Put them in boarding schools, bring a nanny at home, do whatever it takes, but become financially independent first to get the confidence and have some money in your hand so that then you can plan your escape if at all you come to that stage. You touched on a few really important things because a lot of times people will say if they haven't seen abuse before, or if they don't understand how abuse works within a relationship, especially if there are children involved or dependents involved. Some people will just say, why didn't they just leave? Mm -hmm. Or why would they just like let it happen? But it's so much more complex than that. And it's so difficult to leave. So with this type of relationship where people don't understand why it's difficult to leave, what would you say to that? Again, they are not in our shoes. They do not understand what a victim or a lady who's being in a relationship goes through because there are so many things at stake. 
The first thing is that the perpetrator is so manipulative that they hit you and then they come to you crying and begging to, for you to come back in their lives again and let's be happy and I'll never do this again and I don't have anybody else in my life and that I love you and all of that. So you become a prey to that manipulation. Then again, you're not financially independent, especially in India, which means that a woman or a girl, whosoever is getting married, is given forever to the in-laws, to the husband. So she has half a life or 20, 30 years of their life in the parents' house. She is their daughter. And in that one day, the, the day she gets married, she's told, you are gone from here. You will not come back here unless, in crude terms, they say, till the day you die. It doesn't mean that you will not visit them, but that's what they mean, that you are not coming here with your problems anymore. Not in my time, but earlier than that, but that's the stories we have heard. That that's your house now. Those are your people now. That's your husband. His brothers are your brothers. His sisters are your sisters. So you have that in mind too, as to now you are torn between this house or that house. You belong nowhere. This man is hitting you. Parents may not be now welcoming you. And then where? There's no place to go. You can't be homeless. That makes you stay there. And then there is nobody to protect you. The law is not on your side. The police refuses to protect you. The society shames you. There is no other place for you to go. Either you die in that house. That's why so many suicides take place. Or if you rebel in, with your husband, then the chances are homicide. So there is no way one can leave. Yes, and with factors like that, especially with what you had to go through and what I'm sure other people, many other people in India have to go through, and we see it everywhere else too, it's so much more than just packing your bags and leaving. There are so many factors, psychological and emotional, that go into trying to decide whether it's safer to stay with an abuser or to try and leave them. Yes. I mean, one thing you had talked about in your reasoning was the cycle of abuse. Yes. Where the perpetrator, there's this honeymoon period where you, the person is the person that you fell in love with. They're the person that you want them to be. They're the person that you hope for, and right. it's good for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then well, you slowly learn their behaviors, and you start kind of walking on eggshells. Like something's brewing, something's about to happen, okay. and then you finally end up in the state where it gets physical, or it gets violent, it gets abusive in some sort of way. Right. And then you kind of just have to survive that period, and then it just starts all over again. All over again. Yeah, and a lot of people just hold on to the hope that like this person's finally going to change. Like they they know they mess up. They say they're going to change. And I just find it so interesting that for a lot of people, we stay because we want them to change. And it's hard. It's yeah. hard to, yeah, and, to not see the change actually. Yeah, it's like you are hoping against hope all this time. And especially with my education, I was a master's in social work. So for me, it was like, I go and do social work outside. Why don't I do it at home? I need to work on this man. But it's impossible to do that. 
Yeah. And you can only, there's only so much you can do as an individual. Awesome too. You get? Yes, I'm good. You try to get them help. You try to get them to open their eyes up to the light to see what's actually going on. And you want to provide them with the means and the resources to change and help them get there so that you can have this great and meaningful relationship. And I've experienced that in some of my relationships too. And one question that I always come back to is, how many chances is too many chances? Like how many opportunities should I allow this person to know what they're doing and yet still try to hope that they may change? I feel now when I look back, just one opportunity is good enough. Because if they are ready to take medical help and counseling, then it's okay to stay. But if they refuse to do it, just walk out. Because that can, I mean, before it's too late, you should walk out. So according to me, it's just, you can give three chances if they are going to for help and they are getting counseling. And in between some episode is happening, then it's okay to give like a third chance maybe. But otherwise, no. I would agree with you. Now, looking back on some of my relationships and the things that happen, even after the fifth time, yeah. I was like, okay, maybe this time. And then I told myself, you know what? The next time it happens, I'm going to leave. And then the next time happened. And I was like, okay, no, this is the last time. One more time. Yeah. It's like you kind of have to put yourself first. Yeah. And that was actually one of the pieces of advice that you got. You had mentioned in the book that someone told you to make yourself happy first. So how did this advice impact your journey and what does that look like in practice? Jody, that was my turnaround for me. Like they say, a turning point comes in your life. His advice, the gentleman that I went to, actually, he was a divorce lawyer. And I went to him. He was a friend of my colleague. So I went to him and I told him what was going on, etc., And my purpose of going was that I wanted to know what were the chances of custody of children? How much is there a possibility of me getting all the three children all being divided between the two, etc. And he said, the children will be divided for sure because all the three cannot come to you. They, They will go to him one or it could be two. It could be all the three if he proves that you are having some relationship outside of marriage. And I, that was unacceptable to me. None of my children would go to him and become like sociopaths in life. That was not something that I could tolerate. So then I kept talking to him and he says, listen, you are not a born martyr. Why do you want to sacrifice your life and make it so unhappy and sad by living with this man and not ready to give your children? And I said, Ranjeev, not ready to give my children, but yeah, if there's any other advice you can give me. And he said, you are so young and you look so sad. You have to be happy in life to make your children happy. How can you look after your children with this depression that I can see it in your, on your face? So he said, he took out a paper from a printer and he wrote in capital letters, me, M-E-Me, in a red ink and then underlined it and gave it to me. 
He said, think about you. It's me. It's me first. So first you be happy and then you make your children happy. My goosebumps, even today I have the goosebumps while I'm talking this to you. I straight away went home. That resonated with me so well that I said, I am going to be happy from today onwards. So the first thing that I did was getting into self-love. I went home. I put mirrors everywhere. I just said in the living area, in my bedroom, and of course the bathroom had it, in the hallway. And I said, I'm going to look into these mirrors every day and say, I am the best. See, simple thing that we hear so much from everybody. Say, I'm the best. And that's what I did. And then I got into self-compassion. I started to look after myself well. I had started to earn by that time. So I would go to salons for many petty and small things just to create some space for myself. Music was my passion when I was not married. So I started to listen to music. So I started to do those small things which would make me happy. So that changed my life because that gave me the confidence. I started to get my esteem back. Identity would come later, of course. A little bit more struggle was required. But then I started to feel better. Yes, and that's really important because after you have experienced abuse of any sort from anybody, it diminishes your self-confidence and your outlook on life and your belief in yourself just in general. And like you may not even realize that now because of this abuse, you may be battling certain disorders that you didn't know you've acquired, like PTSD or depression, anxiety, and the list could continue. So it's really important to try to take care of yourself and move forward. How did that, how did putting yourself first impact your relationships with your children and like outside the home, like once that happened? I think the confidence that I gained helped me with my job too. Mm -hmm. I started to be more assertive and do things more confidently earlier because of my anxiety and insomnia, not sleeping in the night. I was not able to perform that well with so much of confidence. And that changed me. Looking after myself changed that. My Even my presentation Everything changed. My physical presentation, the way I clothed myself, the way I walked with my spine straight, everything changed. The very demeanor changed. With my children, of course, they became happier to see me happy. Because especially my daughter, my boys I had sent to the boarding school, so they were not very much at home. But my daughter was with me constantly, and she was happy to see me happy. So. Yeah. It kind of reminds me, you can't pour from an empty cup. So you kind of have to fill your cup up first before you can take care of anybody else or pour into them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was kind of apparent reading your story in the book. Like once you started doing that, everything kind of felt like it fell into place after that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And it's great once an individual who's gone through abuse can get to that point where they kind of have themselves back. But why do you think so many people who've experienced this hold on to the shame or any other negative emotion that is really the perpetrators to hold? 
not the victims. Why do we hold on to that, do you think? We hold on to that because we are made to think that you are the problem. It's the perpetuate puts in your mind that you are the problem. I do this because you are the one who instigate me to do that. So the problem lies with you, not with me. And then the person who is abused thinks that this is a normal life. So they have to come out of that mentality and accept that they are the victim. Unless they do that, they will not be able to get out of it. Yeah, and sometimes it is really hard to acknowledge that, you know, it's not me. I, like, I put the dishes in the dishwasher a certain way. That's not the reason why this person should be going off and doing the things they do. Like, that's not, like you said, it's not normal. It's not acceptable. It's not justifiable. And it's like, it's theirs to hold, not yours. Right. But it takes a lot to get to that point where you can, like, let it go and almost forgive yourself for feeling those things or thinking those things toward yourself. Right. Right. The one easiest way, not the easiest, but one way of getting out of that victim mentality is to start envisioning how the freedom looks like to you. If I am not trapped, because you you know that you are trapped, but you are not ready to accept it. You have been isolated. You are being beaten. You are being controlled totally. Somebody is exerting their power on you. You cannot take any decisions. You don't have money to spend. So you are trapped. But then you become so weak mentally, emotionally, that you start to feel, okay, fine, you know, I mean, this is okay. Let me not get think so much about it. Let me not get into more trouble. This is okay. I can bear it. So, but once you understand that this was not your life before marriage, what if I can get to that life again? So if you started envision freedom, how it will look like, then perhaps you are ready to take the next step. Yeah, it's like you have to create an exit plan. Yes. Of sorts. Oh, oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to plan. So how were you finally able to get free of this person in your life? So Jodi, it took me a while. It wasn't for me, like you said, pack a suitcase and walk out. I had to plan it very strategically because I there was no room for error for me. Because if at any point in time I made an error, I would lose my children. So I started to plan and I said, okay, this will be my first step. This is going to be my second step. This will be my third step. So once I gained the belief in self, by self-love and self-compassion and self-being, self-preservation and other things like rewiring and I did a lot of things, when I was physically strong, by taking, you know, supplements and B12 injections and whatnot. And then I started also taking some, sometimes like sleeping pills to sleep, like safe ones, prescription of the doctor, so that I could sleep overnight and feel better in the morning. So once I was strong and resilient physically and mentally, that's the time when I started to plan and get out of it. So my first plan was to, Put my 
all the three children to boarding school. I did not know from where the money will come for the fee. I did not think about it so much. I said, I'm working. I have full faith in universe. I have full faith in higher power. Money will come. So I just put my three children into a boarding school. I went at least to four boarding schools, traveled to places to find out the best that my children could go. And so finally, I sent them all the three to a boarding school. Of course, my daughter came back after one year and she didn't want to be alone, left alone with her father. She kind of had the inkling what was going on. I mean, she, could, she saw what was going on, so she came back. But that was my first step towards my ramp building. I call it a ramp because it was slow. It, it, was, it was not like a ladder, one, sec, one step, two step, three steps. It was just like a ramp and it broke a couple of times, but I would not deter from my plans. I would just once again build it. So boarding school was my first win. And then the second win was that I bought a house in my, because he had, he would just push me out of the house middle of the night, anytime he wanted, along with the children. So that was my second step. The third step first was to become financially independent then the boarding school, then the buying a house and things like that. So I kept on moving. And then finally, when things were still not changing and he would not change and his modus operandi of hitting me became much more intensive. At that time, I thought I need to run away from India with my three children so that he can't find me anywhere. And that's the time I planned to come to U.S. Yeah, and you even tried a few times to get him. Like, he even went to a psychiatrist and yeah. they diagnosed him and you tried helping him and he yes. just no. refused. No, he refused. Because he his alcoholic thumb was the main culprit also. Here they go. Oh, He's I'm sorry. Yeah, babe. Come on, get me, baby. Get you. Yeah, we have a German shepherd who, oh, anytime oh. anyone <laughs> comes by and there's some construction going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then this one feeds off his energy. Yeah. All right. Hopefully we're out of the woods. Okay, I'll start, I'll start back with saying how you tried getting him help and he yeah. refused. Sorry, I can hear my sister out there. Okay. Yeah, and you even tried getting your now ex to see a psychiatrist and he did and he was able to be diagnosed and there was a plan set in place for him, but he just refused. Yeah, he would not want to take any medication. He was not ready. He was not ready to give up his addiction for alcohol. And uh, which meant in the book, you may have read my daughter's message where she said, that uh, that means that he cared, and if he had any love for us, he cared about us, then he would have left his addiction, but he didn't. Yeah, and that's got to be so painful, especially as a family unit, oh, yeah. to have that happen. And speaking of family units, throughout the book, you spoke very highly of your family, and you had a great support system in them. How would you encourage people to leave abusive relationships who may not have a strong family or support system? See, even I had, in spite of having a support system, they were not directly involved in my escape because I would not tell them the whole stories so that they are not hurt and they are not in pain. So I would tell them just like 
very, very superficial things that he gave me one slab or things like that. I would not tell them the whole day. So they were not a part of my strategy and my escape. Everybody in this story, like mine, is alone. They don't have anybody to help them in that sense. Their strength has to be made by themselves. Their planning is their own. They have to gain that tenacity by themselves and the courage to get out, to walk out at a safe time is all them. So I know that support system is great in the sense that makes you feel that, okay, fine, I have somebody. I'm not like figuratively, I'm not alone in that sense. I have somebody I can share, I can talk to, I can shed a few tears. But I still, even in that case, I used to go to a therapist rather than my friends or my, my parents or my sister. I'd rather have a therapist who, with whom I could share everything. My, I could pour my heart out and cry if I had to. So support system is great. It's not only the family. I think even the community should be a support system for such victims by just making them inclusive, listening to them, not shedding them away that why should I get involved in it, but listening to them and making them inclusive, a part of the society, not shunning them away. So yes, definitely support is required. But like I said, you are alone in your planning to escape. Yeah. And being alone in that process and just trying to figure out your game plan to escape can be so daunting and terrifying. Yes. Because there's always the internal struggle of, I'm planning this. What if they find out I'm planning this? What if yes. they catch on to what I'm doing? Is it safer just to kind of stay and try to keep them at bay? You know, and then there's always the question of when is a good time to leave? Because you always right. want to leave, but there's always something happening where you think to yourself, okay, maybe this is it. That you may get too scared and then you lose that window and then you have to wait for another window. Right. Exactly. And that is why I spent such a long time because I had to wait till my children became 18 years old and say in the court that we will stay with our mother. So that, that's how my planning took so, had so many milestones in it because they had to be 18 by the time and lose the track. What was the question? You're good. You're good. I was talking about how when people or trying to make their game plan to escape. Well, there's always that internal struggle of when do I leave? Should I leave now? Then you would lose that window, right? And it's just like a vicious yes. battle inside yourself. Correct. Yeah. Did I answer that? No. <laughs> okay. I then think you did. And, and then you were talking about how for you, when like you had to wait so long because you wanted to make sure your children were safe and that was your main concern. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my my whole driving force was my children. That was my mission, that nothing should happen to the children. And I wanted to bring them up in a similar way I was brought up. Educated, they have everything that other children have in their lives in the same society. So I wanted to give them all and have a good life. So... Yeah, the planning had to be done. Yes, very strategically, like you've mentioned, and carefully. 
I also thought it was fun and interesting when you talked about how in your journey, you read certain books. And one that stuck out to me specifically was Eat, Pray, Love. So how did reading and specifically that book influence you on your journey? Yeah, so that was very interesting time that I read that book. I had already come to U.S. with my three children and I was still hurt. I had not yet come out of that hurt. My The whole grew, some episodes were still embedded in me and they would show me like a film every morning when I, when I would get up. So I was, I didn't know how to get out of that at that time. So when I read this book, Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gill, in that I read that she goes to India to find spiritualism or to be on that journey. Or she came back and she was on that journey. So I called my mom at that time in India. And I said, mom, you know, I've read this book and this American lady, she goes to India in search of peace and harmony and soul searching. And I've lived in India for so long. So why I didn't get in touch with the guru or, you know, I didn't find that. So we in our family, we believed in a guru and I had a faith in him too. But last few years, I was totally disconnected because of so much going on in my own life. So she said that if you are so much desperate to find a guru, you will see him in America. And I said, how come I'll see him in America? He's not going to come here. He says, no, wait and watch. (laughs) So she just put that faith in me by saying that. So I went to the guru again and I came to know that he was visiting Malaga in Spain. So I flew there and my journey on spiritualism kind of, I regained and started to be on that journey once again by going there. Because in that discourse that day, he talked about acceptance and forgiveness. And, and the crux of acceptance was that the blueprint is in his hand. You cannot do much about it. The framework has been sketched for your life already. All you can do is that you can change the journey or the path to reach that. If there is something bad to happen, perhaps you can put some efforts into it. Also accept that whatever universe is doing to you is is already a part of the blueprint. So you accept that, don't resist it. Because if you resist it, then you will suffer more. So don't, don't resist, but accept what he has planned for you. At the same time, you, so acceptance is something that I, from that day, knew the meaning, but I didn't know the in-depth meaning, which I got that day. And I said, okay, fine. I don't need to be so hurt about my past. It is gone. I have to accept it that it happened with me and now I have to move on with life. And the same thing with forgiveness. He said that when you forgive somebody, you are not forgiving the person, but you are forgiving yourself from that hurt. You are saying that, okay, fine. I forgive this and now I should move on. So you are getting away from that pain that you are undergoing. So those things, they put me back to the path of spirituality and I started to read books on spirituality. I listened to a podcast and 
that changed my path a lot. And I came closer to my soul after that. And that brought me a lot of tranquility and harmony in my life. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. There's a couple of things that I kind of want to raise awareness on and just hear your thoughts and kind of expand on what stood out to me in the book. And it dealt specifically with the treatment of women in India. And mm-hmm. when I read these parts in the book, my mind was just so blown because you hear of stuff like this happening. But like for me, I don't know if it's a defense mechanism or just I don't know as much as I should. Mm-hmm. You think, oh, this stuff happened hundreds of years ago. Like yeah. this didn't happen 20 years ago or still today. Yeah. So the first one I want to talk about is how it is acceptable to burn new brides alive if the family that they're marrying into does not believe that the dowry they're receiving is good enough. Right. I mean, dowry system in India has been prevalent for thousands of years. Certain parts of India, they have to give more dowry. Like in South India, they they measure the weight of the bride and that much gold they have to give to the to the bridegroom. And there are other areas where they are poverty-ridden, but the but the bridegroom has asked for a motorcycle, for example. I want to, and they they have nothing to eat, but they have to give that to the to the bridegroom family. So it is a Joshi ritual that has been there for years. And uh, there was a point in time when I was getting married. At that point, I these stories were so much in the media that the brides were getting burnt alive. Because the mother-in-law and the husband would cook same day and night to go back and bring this for us and bring that much money for us or we want to buy a property or have the your father's property in our name or something that nature. And the girls, poor things, they, they didn't know what to do. And there were stories also where they would put kerosene on the girl and burn her. There were movies made at that time. And I'm sure in interiors of India, it is still going on. It may have reduced, the numbers may have reduced only because now the urban India when I was growing up was only 5% and the interiors in rural India was 95%, agricultural India. Now in the last 15 years or 20 years when the globalization has happened and more industrial industries are opening up in the urban areas and people from the rural areas are migrating to the urban areas for want of employment. The urban India has expanded to about 20. So those numbers may have decreased now a little from 95% to now they are 70%. So the numbers obviously would have decreased a little, but not whole lot. There are still honor killing going on where if you do a love marriage between two different castes, they straight away murder both the girl and the boy. You know, it's called honor killing. So yes, there are things like that happening in India still. Yeah, it's tragic. And it's, yeah, I, my mind is just like I called my sister. Yeah. When I was like reading all this, like I just like I I don't want to believe it, but like it's happening. Yeah. The second one, you were talking about how when you got married, you wanted to see your family, but you had to ask your father-in-law permission kind of to do anything. 
and it's the father-in-law or the family that you've married into that has the final say on pretty much all of the decisions that get made in your life. Right. So, yes, the father-in-law, in my case, the mother-in-law was not alive. So the father-in-law, but definitely India has a very strong man role belief system. The man is born to have power and the woman is born to serve. So the man role belief system, the men are the ones who exert their powers. And if I had to go to my, see my family or go to a friend's house or do anything, I would have to ask his permission. Can I do that? And he would then give the permission. So, yes, it is still prevalent. It is very much prevalent. The elders are the ones who will make the decisions for you. Yeah, and it's especially in situations like you found yourself, having that in place definitely hinders a lot of the escape factor or trying to save yourself or get out or make any decision for yourself. Right, right. Another one was... The fact that you can hire con men to harass, kidnap, and murder people with no retribution whatsoever, like in the eyes of the law, in society, or with God or the higher power. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so sad when I myself even talk about it. It's like, oh my God, I've lived in that society for so long. That, yeah, with money, you can buy anything in India, meaning there's so much of poverty. And there are these con men, young children born in poverty. They raise themselves to become those people. And you can hire them by giving them some money. It's just like you can hire these gunmen anywhere else too. It's just that. But it's a little bit more easier that you just hire somebody to say, yeah, fine. We call it Supari. It's called Supari. S-U-P-A-R-I. So that means these gangs, they live in certain areas and then they are told to murder this particular man. It's called that I have given him supari, meaning I have bribed him to murder that person. So yeah, it is, it is a practice, still privilege. And that is where in the book I said that the lawyer told me that if he proves that you're having relation outside of marriage, then all the three children will go to him. And in my mind, I knew that it was the easiest thing to do for a man to take a picture with standing with somebody or, you know, just at a a time where somebody can think that, oh, perhaps she was with that person. So I, I, yeah, we can just pay money and get things done. Yeah, especially when you talk about how you went to people in law for help, like in like whether it was a judge or attorneys or people you knew who practiced and you were met with, well, what did you do to cause this? Yes. Or like, what are you thinking? There's no way you can get custody of your children. Right. Like, even if you bring in all this evidence of all the things that this man has done, you had said in the book, him just accusing you of having relations outside of the marriage like it would be over for you, but nothing that he had done would even be taken into consideration. Right. And I always say that people ask, why didn't you leave? But society never asks, why was he beating? So there's no question for the perpetrator, but it's always the question for the woman. Mm -hmm. And 
again, I, I feel like I keep saying this, but with your story specifically, it just felt like there were all of these layers that just kept getting put on top of you yes. that held you down in that situation. Right. Yeah. So it was definitely seemed like an impossible situation to get out of. And throughout your whole story, you just see the strength that it took to make all of the decisions that you did. Like even from the beginning, like not knowing what was normal inside of a marriage, like whether you had to take this abuse or not. Yeah. But like you knew after even the first time. And when I read that, I was like, wow. Like she realized it the first time. Like I didn't even realize it the first time. Yeah. And like from that moment, everything had changed for you. Yes. And so like even just that alone takes a whole lot. So your story is very inspirational and very encouraging. So I'm very happy that you shared it. And I know it's going to impact a lot of people. So would you like to share kind of what you're up to now and what your mission is? Yeah. So Jodi, I'm so happy to share that I am thriving right now. I am at a point where I am peaceful. I have joy. I live life on my own. There is hope. There is desire. There is fulfillment. I feel empowered and I've transformed totally. I've also transcended into an advocate for the people of domestic violence, which means that I do group counseling and I do one-on-one coaching for people who are being abused, who want to set themselves free. Then there are others who are free, but they do not know how to take the next. So they need help too. And here I'm also encouraging the survivors to come out and talk and share their stories so that other people can listen to their courage and listen to their creative thinking, so to say, that how to plan, what to do. I think one thing that works in any adverse situation that worked in me is belief in self, because you have to bring your grit and your commitment. Because commitment and consistency is very important. Once you plan that you have to get out, then there is, should be no looking back because then that can harm you much. So you have to keep moving forward. And freedom is our birthright. Nobody has the right to put us in shackles and take advantage of us. So we are born free. We need to die free. Oh, I completely agree. And to reiterate what you said, I agree it's very important for survivors to share their stories so that people who are stuck in situations can relate and say, I can use this piece, like this fits, like I can do this, I can do this, and kind of put together their own sort of escape plan. Well, Kanchan, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Jodi, for bringing me to your podcast. Just love talking to you. Nail Partners, Inc. is a Black-owned commercial real estate, urban planning, and community engagement firm based in St. Paul, Minnesota. We believe in developing generative results in the community while addressing the pressing challenges facing urban-built environments. Our work and belief system is rooted in applied empathy and putting people first. Our approach delivers thoughtful, human-centered solutions for clients and cultivates sustainable relationships. We make a conscious effort to hire local residents as community liaisons, staff, and consultants to support engagement in local communities. 
we hire local talent as interns and have developed an artist-in-residence program in order to build up young and upcoming professionals within our community. We are currently hiring for our summer intern program. We provide real estate development and business technical assistance to small business owners, entrepreneurs, and companies that share our values. So if you're a business owner looking to do things the right way the first time, it's time to do things the NAO way. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature.